Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation is a tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit private foundation. Your donations, sponsoring, and funding allows us to create content that raises awareness of African-American traditional music, African-American folklore, and the Black experience. Check the link in the description box to donate. If you wish to sponsor podcasts, documentary series, or underwrite ads in our newspaper, The African American Folklorist, contact the email address in the description box. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, blues people? Yet another episode of Jack Dapper Blues Podcast, where we celebrate, raise awareness, and edify on our traditional music, our heritage, our culture, vernacular, and everything that comes along with it. We're in June, Black History, Black Music History and Black Music Month, or as I like to say, the History of Black Music Month. <laughs> and um, I'm speaking to... Mr. Corey Washington, about a very, to me, what can be considered as a very unique and important book, especially when it comes to the blues people. A lot of people miss, well, again, let me rephrase that. In my perspective, a lot of people miscategorize Jimi Hendrix. You know, and they, they place him where they would like him to go or where they think he should go. And a lot of people don't remember where he started from, nor do they remember who he actually was. I just want to read this little excerpt. Then we're going to get to this interview with Corey Washington, the writer of Black Jimi Hendrix's Black Legacy, A Dream Deferred, which is a culmination of a two-decade journey of the author, who I'm speaking with today, Corey Washington's exploration of Jimi Hendrix's complex and misunderstood relationship and impact on the Black community. Jimmy's life has been featured in numerous biographies over the years, but very little has been properly documented when it comes to his influence on people of color. Hendrix was often seen by many to have transcended race, which is, and I agree, a slap in the face to his deep cultural roots concerning not only his black musical traditions, but simply growing up as a black person in the 40s and in the 60s. And this is why this conversation in this book is so important to me, especially with what's that phrase that goes around? No, no white, no black, just blues. Mr. Washington, how are you today? I'm uh, doing pretty good, Lamont. How about yourself? I, as you can see, I'm on fire. I'm ready to hear what you got to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, we're we're in the we're right directly smack. I don't want to say in the the middle. And we're not at the tail end, but we're at a cooling point of a pandemic and a national civil unrest that has to do with race relations. What better set up for this conversation? Exactly. Uh, you said the word uh, perfectly. Um, I didn't set out 
you know, to write this book in the midst of this, but I certainly felt this book was definitely needed because of what I've read on Jimmy in the past and what I've seen. And, and so it just felt right to me. So let's start right there. What was it that you witnessed or read or received about and on Jimmy that separated uh, your perspective from everything else that we've been somewhat uh, given on him? Well, when I first learned about Jimmy, it wasn't really a deep dive into him. It was more along the lines of seeing him every now and then or maybe a clip from Woodstock, a clip from Monterey. Uh, They would never really show him around any black people. It was always in the midst of like some sort of hippie environment or psychedelic environment. Mm -hmm. So I never got to know Jimmy from his uh, musical background being starting in the blues and rhythm and blues. And so that was the first thing. Then um, once I started to learn more and more about him, it was like this guy, He's he's has a black musical tradition that's deeply rooted in the blackest of music, but yet he was able to take that, translate it into something that everybody all over the world can can digest. And so it was always a mystery to me as to why this guy wasn't more you know given more respect in the black community. And I knew it couldn't be a simple black and white answer, so I really wanted to get into the nuances of that. And that's what spurred my uh, research and what led me to my first book, Nobody Cages Me, and then my second bigger book on Jimi Hendrix, uh, Jimi Hendrix's Black Legacy. Okay, so now with that being said, the first thing I would like to say is I like that you use the term digest rather than relate to, right? Because there's a difference there. Um, Two, so before we get to... um, Black Legacy, A Dream Deferred. Give, talk to us about that initial book, No One Can Cage Me. Right. Nobody Cages Me was taken from a, a quote from Jimi Hendrix where he probably all through his life was used to people trying to put him in boxes and categorize him. Well, he pretty much said, nobody can cage me. And he proved that with his life. Uh, he was able to play several genres of music. He was able to be the first of many for not just African-Americans, but just people, period. And it was pretty much a metaphor for life. You know, Jerry Hendrix was speaking to people through his music and, and letting you know that nobody should be able to carry you, just be yourself. And that was sort of a larger issue I spoke to in that book. So now, I remember watching a clip of Jimmy being uh, interviewed. I forget this uh, white gentleman's name. He's he was very uh, famous for interviewing what could be considered controversial people who have voices. Everybody from Jimmy to Richard Pryor to um, uh, uh, Janis Joplin. We can go down the list. And um, I just recall Jimmy saying, "I don't think I'm the best. I I, I just." try my hardest to find new ways of playing this. So I'm now I'm paraphrasing. I didn't, I don't think that's his exact words. I, I, I say that because uh, what was Jim as a black man coming out of traditionally black music, what would you 
believe based on your information was his motivation? Was it to preserve or was it to find new ways to explore his traditional music? I think he was doing both simultaneously. Um, if you listen to his music and you listen to the blues, you'll find him playing some of the oldest forms of the blues, Delta blues. You know, it sounds like stuff that you might have heard maybe some slaves playing after picking cotton. You know, it was just so authentic. Right. And then he would take take that and then just go straight into some um City blues, or you know, however you want to call it, Chicago blues. So, I think that he was preserving the old stuff, which some people took it for new, and then he was trying to explore new realms of which he did with the band of Gypsies. You know, that was um, never had been done before. Where you had three black guys uh, with a power trio playing straight rock, straight blues, straight R&B, straight funk. So, I think he was pretty much doing both at the same time. Mm. So. With that being said, and, and it's kind of um, ironic to me uh, with my, I guess, with my understanding of Jimmy, right? Because we we know um, Little Richard, who recently transcended, is the true king of rock and roll. And if not the, one of the founders, if not one of the forefathers of this, genre which spawns from the blues we have little uh we have uh chuck berry um we we know that jimmy played with um man i see his i can't believe i'm I'm freezing on his name he um jesus i can't believe i'm freezing on his name he's Isley brothers wilson pickett Right, Isaac Brothers, Wilson Pickett. Who's who's the um? He's in Chicago right now, man. I can't believe uh, I'm, I'm I'm freezing on his name. He's like one of the last of the Mohicans of the old bluesmen, and I see his face, and and I can't believe I'm freezing on his name. I, I, no, I buddy guy. But thank you, thank you. Right. So we we have all. I should know that, right? <laughs> we have all <laughs> these great. Uh, 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 black musicians that come out of the tradition that through their exploration, um, I could, we could, we could say forefathered or spearheaded what's become known as new at that time, new genres that were black African-American melanated, however you want to word it. How did Jimmy fall into a category of playing quote unquote, and I'm air quoting now, white music or um, being a player for white audiences when he's always played black music. Does that make sense, that question? Yeah, that kind of makes sense um, because when you think about it, you know, a lot of people kind of try to figure out how the blues sort of got shifted from being an all black art form to when you go to the concerts now, you very rarely see many of us. Right. And so I don't, some people try to say that we don't appreciate our music as black people and other people came in and swooped in and they appreciated. Um, you know, that's probably the simple answer. But I'm not, I, I'm, I've kind of debated that myself. You know, why is it that you very rarely hear complex guitar playing? You know, we, we got psychedelic parliament. 
things like that. But it's like they want to try to keep that away from the masses of black people. Mm. And so I don't know. I think there's something more to that. that you know, maybe something even more sinister, you know. No, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, let me ask this question before we go into an excerpt of a chapter 11, which I have sitting here. Muddy Waters, B.B. King, uh, quite a few of our legendary bluesmen spoke about, and Sun House, who's my favorite, by the way, how it went from having a room audience full of black people to a room audience full of white people, right? Um, and understanding that this white audience is paying their bills for what it's worth. Uh, again, I'm paraphrasing. How, Jimmy being more of a revolutionary than people think, how did he receive what could easily be said that how his people kind of turned their back on him as an artist. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that he sort of was addressing this uh, more strongly before he died. Um, if you remember, he had a concert, I think, in September uh, 5th, 1969, that was in Harlem. And if you look at the pictures, most of the crowd was black. I was spoken to people that attended that concert, as well as Tahar Darlene, who was one of the organizers behind that, um, one of the ghetto fighters. And he was saying that this was very important to Jimmy. He wanted to do something free for the Harlemites and um, make sure that he, the people knew that, you know, he was reaching out to them. And so, you know, that's just one of the things he did. And of course, with the Band of Gypsies, that's where you started to see more black people gravitate toward his music. But if you look at the, this is all in the book as well, you know, Jimmy Hendrix's Black Legacy, if you look at the part that I talk about uh, his effect on R&B, Jimmy Hendrix actually had five uh, top ten R&B albums on Billboard chart. Mm. And he had eight, eight albums in the top 20. So it was like black people were buying his records, but it really wasn't pushed to us. And so therefore, you know, as far as the, the crowds, as far as these concerts, uh, I, mean, I think Jimmy said it himself, $7 is a lot of money, which doesn't seem like a lot now, but back then, you know, for your average black person to, to go to these concerts, it kind of gets kind of pricey. Mm. So those are just some factors to think about. No, I mean, considering the... My introduction to Jimi Hendrix, I might have been nine or ten, and I was just, as as I was babysat by a record player going through my pop's record collection, and I come across Wild Thing, a, a green album cover with a black man in the middle and two white men on the side, which was very odd to me because majority of the records I came across were either one to five black males or four white males. There was not you you didn't usually see that outside of um Sly Stone, who we all knew was a little bit out there. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly. I, right. So I, I wanna read this uh and, and then I just want you to chime in and discuss uh how you feel. 
Uh, and this is uh, Jimmy on race, right? From pages 465 and 468. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just a, a, a couple of excerpts. Jimmy would be featured in the 1969 March edition of Circus Magazine, where he spoke candidly about race in America and the Black Panthers. The article was entitled, Jimi Hendrix on Black and White America. Jimmy spoke about writing a song dedicated to the Black Panthers. He was asked about his perspective on America now that he has lived in London. I want to stop there and I, I want to talk about that. Because even in this day and age, when it could easily be said that people are paid not to give their political, uh, social, racial, or religious views, He's actually saying this, and we're still dealing with, with segregation. How, how important and, and, and how risky was that to make these comments and discuss that back then? Uh, it was very risky. Um, I'm not sure if he felt a level of comfort in him being in, in Europe, but I'm pretty sure he knew that these comments would make their way back to the States um, just for somebody, Jimmy uh, Hendrix, to actually be up on stage and dedicate dedicating songs to the Black Panthers with a, a majority white audience. I mean, that's kind of insane. Can you even think of people that would do that today? Right. Um, so, I mean, and, and it's kind of weird because a lot of times when you talk to his white fans, they try to gloss over that. They try to make excuses. Oh, he wasn't with them. They tried to pressure him to do... But, I mean, if you really go back and study Jimi Hendrix... He made some very controversial, not only statements, but a lot of his statements came from his concerts, you know, when you listen to it. And, and I have that featured in the book as well about the comments that he made while on stage playing the national anthem or so forth. And, and, and I think that's why um, in the description of the book where it says um, he was often seen by many to have transcended race, but that was a slap in the face. That statement of he was forced to make these statements about something that he experiences every day. Um, I, I I don't even know how to begin to unpack that. Now, you, a few lines down, and this is something I wanted to get into with you because a lot of people of many generations and ethnicities were introduced to Jimi Hendrix as an artist through, um, uh, 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 I can't believe that's escaping me. That, that, that big hippie concert, uh, uh, upstate Woodstock. Woodstock. Thank you. But he had a view on, on the cliches of this hippie love and, 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 and uh, love make love movement right that may not have been in alignment to the way they uh, spin the story. Could you talk to us about that? Right, um, the summer of love, nineteen sixty-seven. Um, two years had passed. Uh, it was like already nineteen sixty-nine when he made the comments about you know the the hippie movement was pretty much over with, you know, it's time to get serious, you know. A lot of the subject matter of his song had moved from the psychedelic tones of are you experienced in acts of gold is love to songs where he's talking about 
um, straight ahead, power to the people. You know, those are the type of things that he was talking about, you know, at that point. And so, you know, that kind of stuff gets downplayed because, you know, people don't want to deal with those realities. They just, since he's no longer here to defend himself, they kind of want to shape their own opinion of him and not deal in the reality of, of his words and his actions that was during that time period. Mm. Now, since we're on this, I want to, I would like you to, to unpack Jimmy's uh, feelings and uh, statement about the Beatles, considering they, they, they rose to fame using a, a, a black method of music <laughs> and, and never credited these black musicians. Right. Right. Um, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, he probably had admiration for a lot of the people over there in Europe and so forth. But I mean, as far as these people, you know, being over him or, in some sort of superior way to him, I'm pretty sure he knew that he had the, the real deal, the, the real authentic blues, the real authentic um, traditions from the Chitlin circuit. And so that's why he was a threat to a lot of those people over there in Europe. And that's why he excelled above them. And uh, it's kind of weird that after he died, you start to see all of these guitarists over there all of a sudden pick their game up because they no longer have Mr. Hendricks to compete with or to, you know, people say that you're copying him because he was no longer there. And so uh, I thought that was a, a very interesting dynamic. I I agree with you because as you were saying that, one person came to my mind who I'm definitely not a fan of, and that's Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, I, he said a lot of racist stuff himself, you know. Exactly. And, you know, so I'm happy you said that. That's a great segue. Considering the time we're in, and, and I see a lot of discussions, um, a couple of them from a very great white fellow named Rick, and, 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 and then some young and middle-aged blues musicians. How can you like the blues, but ignore race, racism, you know. We're talking about Jimmy playing in a time, again, that was still segregated. Like, I, talk, I, I say this all the time. One of my favorite movies is um, Remember the Titans, right? And this takes places with Denzel Washington. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not. 19 it takes place in 1974 and and it's about this town that was racially divided segregated and all of this and this football team in this town brought the entire town together because they kind of broke the racial barriers and that's not so long ago and that's after jimmy died right how so so how what you you mentioned a lot or at least in 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 the book in the doc in, in the document that I'm reading, the use of black power at a time where they were trying to fit him in the white market. How did that affect money? 
how did that affect a group of people who wanted the music but didn't want to know the truth about how the the people the music came from was being dealt with? Right. It's almost like um, athletes. Um, you know, I, people that are racist having favorite athletes that are black, uh, favorite entertainers. I think there was a famous scene in um, Fight League's movie, Do the Right Thing, where the guy was racist and he was like, my favorite um, artist is Prince. That's so right. here it is, he's saying the N-word and this and that and, and being racist. So I think a lot of times they try to divorce these uh black entertainers, whether it be musicians or athletes from their blackness. And um, some kind of way they were able to do that with Jimmy, but they are able to do it now because he's not here to um, defend themselves. And a lot of the people that they have speaking for him are not black, they're white. And so they don't really see the importance of, um, you know, showing Jimmy as he truly was a, a black man who not to transcended race, but he was able to use his position and he wasn't afraid to really speak out because he did that several times, but a lot of that stuff gets mixed up and that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book so I could give people a reference point to show where Jimi Hendrix, well, he may not have been the most political guy, he may not have been the most uh, militant guy like a Malcolm X or anybody, but he definitely wasn't afraid to speak out and, and use his position, not just to speak out, but to help people around him as well. So what, let's talk about your story. Where, where did you come from? What do you do? And why did you feel, what ordained you to tell this story? I understand why you felt it was important, but based on your trajectory and your story, how did it lead to this? Let's see. I was born in 1976, New York City. When I was born, uh, disco was a big thing, house music, which grew into hip-hop. Um, all of these things, Jimi Hendrix was never talked about in my house or on the street with my friends. You know, we were talking about Michael Jackson, Prince, you know, Lionel Richie, that kind of stuff. And so as I grew up, you know, I, I moved down south and it's like, I'm a big wrestler. I was a big wrestling fan anyway. <laughs> and uh, Hulk Hogan, that's a whole other story about his racism and stuff. But uh, at the time, you know, he was a, a popular wrestler of mine. He came to the ring playing a Jimi Hendrix song, Voodoo Child. Mm. And it was like, never heard it before. And the, the Wawa introduction sounded like scratching to me, you know, like a hip-hop guy scratching the record. Right. Mm. And that kind of caught my ear. And so it was like, I said, who is this? You know, and then it went from that to I got to have this guy's record. I got to have this. And, and it was almost like a mistake because I, that, that little child appeared on Electric Ladyland. Mm. But me not knowing about Jimi Hendrix, I went out and brought the blues um, uh, cassette tape. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix Blues. Yes. Yes, and Jimmy. And it's him playing blues. Yeah. Yeah. And so I brought that by mistake because I saw Voodoo Child on there, even though that was the other version of uh, Voodoo Child, which more, was more like a blues version right. with uh, Stevie Winwood. And, and, and all those old-timer versions. Right, right. 
And so that was my first introduction to Jimi Hendrix was actually the blues. Mm. And so it was like, right after that, I knew all my conceptions or misconceptions of him were blown out the water. And it was like, from there, I said, I'm going to go backtrack and get all this other stuff. And it was like, all your experience, access, all his love, electric, like, it just kept getting better and better and better. And it was like, man, I was just blown away. And so I did a paper for the college that I was going to back in 2002, Augusta University, Augusta State University. Mm. And one of the questions I posed was, why was Jimi Hendrix not as appreciated as he should have been in the black community? Mm. And so it all started from there, just me asking those questions. Why is Jimmy not on black radio? You know, why is he not this? Why? And then you know, talking to people and finding out. And then it was like I started a um, blog talk radio show called Jimi Hendrix Black Legacy Series. Mm. And I would interview people. They would come on there and they would tell me about Jimmy. And these were all black people telling me about what he meant to them. And so from there, I had so much information, I was able to do uh, my first book. And so it's like, almost like a shocker to me. It's like I started from a position of not knowing who Jimi Hendrix was to thinking he was a Uncle Tom or whatever you want phrase you want to use to going from that to being blown away and everything about him just kind of turning upside down. And I'm like, if this, if this is what I thought, just imagine how many other black people out there think something similar. And so that's when I went on like this personal crusade to educate people, to find out more, document things, so that all of this stuff can be in a book form so nobody has to go um, looking for sources or, you know, it'll be right there for you. Man, I mean, that's just tough city. You know, and you, you use the term Uncle Tom. I mean, there's a misconceptions of of, of this cat. <laughs> and, and the unfortunate reality, but thanks to you for bringing this to our attention, is documented that he was so much the opposite. So now we have to ask the question, who perpetuated this narrative? <laughs> you, you know, right, definitely. Now you mentioned yeah, black radio stations. I want to go there. I didn't mean to cut you off. I wanted to go there for a minute because you said, "Why is he not being played on black radio stations?" And I, I would like to know if you found out an answer to that because I know between you and I and everybody listening, uh, black people that are music, radio programmers. I had a black brother who's a good brother. Don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking bad about him. Uh, he's a music program director for a popular uh, st couple of stations. And he told me to take my radio program to the Chitlin circuit down South. And now he didn't say it in, in a sarcastic way. He didn't say it in a disrespectful way. And he wasn't trying to be funny or condescending whatsoever he was giving me what he believes was the most sound and best business advice so by no means am i sharing this story with any kind of uh, uh ill will but what i'm saying is even our people that the music comes from whether they're one to two generations remo removed don't understand 
the importance of the legacy of these people, let alone their music. What do you think about that? Right. It's kind of unfortunate because um, I know back when Jimmy was uh, in his heyday in the late 60s, I think it was a DJ um, that was out of New York and he was there for the concert in Harlem. And he had to actually apologize to the people in the audience for not playing Jimi Hendrix's music. Mm. You know, because he was a powerful program director. I don't know if it was Eddie O.J. or O.J. or something like that, but he had to apologize. And then when you start doing the research, you find out that a lot of these program directors and DJs, they don't even get to pick their music. It's all out of corporate somewhere. Mm. You know, some DJ in New York is taking directors from somebody in Dallas somewhere. And so um, the, the cat's been out the bag for a while now because now you got Clear Channel and um, uh, iHeartRadio and all these other things doing all the programming. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like a lot of this stuff, you know, as far as them thinking that they know what black people want to hear, I'm, I'm not buying that because, you know, when I talk to people, they, you know, tell me several things about Jimmy's music and, and uh, if you like Parliament Funkadelic, how can you not like Jimi Hendrix, you know? Correct. And so I think there's a platform, but like you say, if you don't have control of this stuff and you're not willing to admit it, then how can it change? And so now we got to rely on, like, uh, internet radio and things like that. So I got to give props to people like Ricky Vincent out there in the Bay Area. He's got to show the history of funk where he plays Jimmy on a regular basis. Gary T out of Chicago with his uh, oldies uh, radio station. Uh, he plays Jimmy a lot. Um, Jimmy Blue used to be on the radio uh, there in the tri-state. He played Jimmy a lot. And so you got these people that are not on the major radio stations, but, you know, I get to listen to Jimmy on the radio now. But it took the, um, the online radio stations and the smaller radio stations to do it because the big time radio station is too much money tied up in that. I just want to take a moment for a public service announcement. Did you all hear what he just said? So when Jack Dapple Blues, which is a 501c3 public media platform, is raising funds to be on the air, this is why, so you can get that goody-goody real stuff. I just had to take that moment for a shameless plug. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't blame you. Now, you yeah. wait before I ask. I, I really want to ask you this, but uh, but uh, all right. So, a dream deferred. Did you use that in the title as, as a playoff of Langston Hughes' uh, 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 poem? Yes, definitely. Uh, you know, it wasn't meant to be as forceful as he used it. Uh, which was very serious, you know, what happened to a dream the third, you know, you keep putting something off, you know, you, you know, it's just like what we're seeing now. You keep telling black people, oh, yeah, we think you're equal. We think all lives matter. We think this and that, but it never happens. It's like people are going to get forceful about it. That's right. And so that's what happens to a, a dream when it's the third, you know, people start demanding, that they forget about demanding change, they just start taking it. That's right. Um, but this situation, I put a dream to third because Jimmy's dream was to not just have black fat, uh, white fans, but he wanted black fans and all fans of color. Uh, he was t- 
trying to get there, but it kind of didn't get there. And that was just my take on that. I see things starting to move in a certain direction. Um, to him, his dream being deferred. He didn't get it when he was here, but now, you know, I, I have a section in my book that talks about hip hop. Mm. And you see all the times that Jimmy is mentioned in these hip hop songs, all the people, black people that did covers of his songs, mm-hmm. um, and all of these things, he probably would have never imagined all of that. That's but, true. you know, I'm right. And then it's like, just to close out, um, I got involved with the R&B Hall of Fame, a guy named Lamont Robinson. I was uh, reading an article on Jimi Hendrix uh, from CNN called um, Jimi Hendrix's Invisible Legacy or something like that. And in this article, it mentioned that Jimi Hendrix was had to be inducted into the R&B Hall of Fame. And that was in 2016. Mm. And when I saw that, man, my mind just flipped and I wanted to get in contact with Mark Robinson and find out how I can be involved. And so long story short, I was able to be the liaison between the Jimi Hendrix estate and the R&B Hall of Fame. And I, I had it set up to where Jamie Hendrix was going to fly in and pick up his award for Jimi Hendrix uh, estate. And it was a scheduling conflict. I don't know if it was because it was around Woodstock or something like that, but Anyway, she couldn't make it, and I wound up reading a statement from her and, and accepting the award on behalf of the estate. Wow. And so, you know, it's like Jimmy, for him to be accepted into the Army Hall of Fame, and then in 2019, he was inducted a second time with his group, the Band of Gypsies, because they were so influential uh, amongst the R&B um, musicians. So he's a two-time inductee into the Army Hall of Fame, so... That's kind of what I mean by a dream deferred, you know. No, I definitely understand. So let me ask you, is this book, and this is part of your forward, is this book divisive? Is it controversial? It shouldn't be. I don't think it is. But the ones that think that it's controversial and divisive, uh, they are the same ones that are saying all lives matter. Uh, they're the same ones that get offended when you talk about white privilege existing. Uh, it's just like they have their head in their sand. In the sand. Uh, when they see the word black next to Jimi Hendrix, I've seen a lot of people try to uh, question whether he's black or not. They'll say uh, he was mixed with Native American or this and that. And it's just a ridiculous uh, notion to think, you know, when you see me, you know, I might be mixed with something somewhere down the line, but I know I'm a black man. Correct. It's no question about it. I mean, it's not just your color, your skin, but it's also a cultural thing. You know that Jimi Hendrix grew up in the Seattle district, in, in, uh, in uh, the central district in Seattle. And if you go there today, you'll still see that that's a black area. Correct. And so that's, that's where he's from. So just saying that Jimi Hendrix's black legacy is just saying that this needs to be talked about. It's not talked about enough. We need to consider, in order, you know, it's the, almost like the argument, if you're going to talk about all lives matter without, uh, you know, mentioning or um, admitting that black lives matter, then you can't say that all lives matter. That's right. So you can't talk about Jimi Hendrix's legacy without also mentioning his black legacy. So what I'm trying to do is go back and fill in those pieces 
so that we can get a fuller picture of his total legacy. So do, do you think, based on what you just shared with us and how he's viewed as well as how he, what the attempt of portrayal is, is why he was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame so early, considering other black musicians? Probably so. I mean, he was inducted with the Jimi Hendrix experience, which was him and two English uh, men, Noel Redding and uh, Mitch Mitchell. But they left out Billy Cox, you know, a black man who replaced Noel Redding, Mm. who, uh, when he came on, Jimmy's music got a lot funkier and appealed to black people more. And uh, he was left out of the lurch, like he didn't do anything. And, And most people agree that he was a better bass player for Jimmy, you know, so it's like even with inducting him, it's like they're still slack, making a slap in the face to his black tradition. You know, you couldn't even put Billy Cox, one of his best friends, uh, uh, as a bassist in there with uh, inducting him with Jimmy Hendrix experience. That was kind of dirty there. That was very dirty. <laughs> the, a, couple, <laughs> a couple of more questions. I, I Share with us the the I want to say the mind state, but I hate asking people about the mind state of someone else. Period, whether they're alive or dead. But um, the presentation of Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner. You mentioned it earlier, but what 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 is your take on what he was trying to convey there? Well. It's like I uh, just had an article printed in the um, Classic Rock magazine on how Jimi Hendrix turned the national anthem into a protest song. Um, for those people that, you know, can handle the truth, that's what he did. Because, you know, he played the song, as he said, the way he heard it in the air. Mm. That's why you hear a lot of bombs going off. That's why you hear a lot of chaos and turmoil and I think you even hear like some ambulances going down the street. I mean, this was 1969. This was in the midst of the, you know, civil rights movement, um, things of that nature. They've had riots, you know, back then. And so you can't really say that Jimmy wasn't in tune to what was going on around him because the way he, he when he played the, at some concerts, he said, this is America. And then that's the way he played it. Mm. And so it was like, you could call it an indictment, but it was just reality. You know, he wasn't really even trying to be controversial. It was like, this is just reality. This is how I see things in the state of what we are now. And I can imagine him playing the song the same way today because we see some of the same stuff going on. So would it be fair to say... Would it, would it be fair to say it, he was just literally expressing, uh, you know, be, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm trying not to compare him, but that part of the story kind of reminds me of Marvin Gaye around the same time where this is really what's happening. And as an artist, you, you want to reflect the times, right? So he was reflecting the times and they were giving him a hard time because they just wanted to 
as the lady said to LeBron James, shut up and dribble. They just wanted him to play the guitar. Right, right. And I think she was on the Dick Cavett show. I think that's who you were alluding to uh, earlier. The yes, Dick sir. Dick Cavett show. And he got on there and Dick Cavett was like, anytime you play the national anthem in some sort of unorthodox way, you usually get a lot of hate mail, and he was like, he was like baffled because it was like I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> you know, you might look at it, you might look at it that way, but this is how I look at it. I thought I was being honest and true to myself, and so that's what you know a true artist is. They 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 can't fake it. You know, they they have to be true, and so with Jimi Hendrix, like you said, um. Uh, I mean, I know this might be speculation, but I mean, a lot of the stuff he did got him on the list of the United States government for, for being um, surveilled. Right. So that's how powerful his music was. And uh, Machine Gun was another song that he used as a protest. Uh, you can actually hear, you know, people dying and screaming and, and all that turmoil going on. And it was an anti-war song, you know, he, he um he had sympathy for the soldiers, but he was like these people on both sides. They're making you kill each other, you know, evil man, you know. And so it was. He was always with his music, getting deeper and deeper as he uh, progressed, especially in 1969, 1970. I think those were his deepest periods. He had got all the other stuff out the way. Sixty-seven. 68 was a masterpiece with Electric Ladyland, but by the time 69 and 70 got here, he was really starting to push the issue. And I think a lot of people in the higher-ups in the government definitely didn't like that. Because he was he, he, he had a lot of people uh, subscribing to his voice, correct? Right, right. I mean, he was pretty much the biggest star, you know, as far as concerts. I mean, just think about it. Um, Nineteen sixty-nine Woodstock, right? You know, he was the headliner. Uh, Isle of Wight, um, that was like even more people than Woodstock. He was the headliner over in uh, in uh, England, and then there was other pop festivals that he headlined. So, when you add all these festivals up, you you're talking multi-millions of people. And um, these are people that are turning out to see him in concert and buying his records and all that. And so, you know, imagine him getting all those people that he had plus starting to pull in more black people. I mean, that was definitely been some power there. Absolutely. And, you know, let's, let's, let's kind of break this down real quick. I'm trying to remember. I don't think we uh, addressed this the way I'm about to ask because we know he came up under um, higher-ranked black musicians as he did, you know, as he went through the tiers, right? Like every other musician, he he played his position until he got to where he needed to be to go out on his own. And majority of those were black musicians who probably schooled him to the business, schooled him to social climate and everything else that um, they had to deal with in, in those even more tremulous times that they were before him, right? Right, right. So, so now with a brother like that, um, armed with this kind of information, was in the service, because he was in the military, and now he's at this, the, the 
we could say the prime of his life musically and voice wise because he obviously knows what he wants to address. How is that for a black man of that caliber navigating, quote unquote, a white world with white audiences? I'm pretty sure he had to do a lot of code switching. Mm. Um, you can hear it in some of his interviews. Um, sometimes they would ask him this, and in his interviews, he was always very tongue-in-cheek. He was very elusive, you know, kind of like Prince. You know, you probably mm. heard some of his interviews. Yes, sir. Uh, Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy was doing that first. Um, and it's like for him to get to that high of a position to to be, um, you know, intermingling with white women and and then having to go in the deep south, you know, those were always kind of treacherous uh, uh, periods of time for him. But for him to do all of that and to just be so good at what he does, it's, it's, uh, and, and it's almost kind of, you know, insulting in a way that, you know, if, if a black person has ever been around other white people and they say, you know what? I forgot you were black. You know that. <laughs> I do know that kind of <laughs> that kind of rubs you the wrong way because it's like, what you think I was? You know, he was that good. You know, and so for him to navigate in the rock crowd and then go to Harlem because uh, there's good evidence that he's done this when you speak to his friends like the Hawk Eileen, uh, George Clemens. Who all these guys were hanging out with him in Harlem, uh, Lonnie Youngblood. Um, these are people that he would leave this environment of the Ritzy Rock crowd, folks, and then he would go into Harlem or uh, go play some backwoods, you know, place. You know, he could do that, you know, and still feel at home. Um, they said it was nothing for him to pop up in um, some of these after hour spots in Harlem and, and grab a guitar and start playing. And so, you know, that's just the kind of world that, that you know, I, I don't know if being in Seattle had something to do with that because you got to um, remember that he wasn't really born in the deep south, but he spent a lot of his time there, but he was actually born in Seattle where things might have been a little more open. So that might have helped him to that extent. Well, I, you know, to my understanding, from my little young life all the way to just to keep it simple, the turn of the century, that's just how black musicians operated. They, they, they got their money where they had to play, then they just met up somewhere where they could be free and get busy. And I'll even go as far as saying um, some of the uh, white jazz musicians um, would meet up with some of the black jazz musicians in a uh, mutually safe environment because, you know, we, we have to be realistic about this. Just like black folk couldn't go into certain neighborhoods, it, you, they have to stop lying and saying how these white people could come up in the backwoods of a black area as if they can leave. If we couldn't leave, y'all couldn't leave. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I just don't understand. But with that being said, you mentioned George Clinton and a few other people. Are these some of the people you interviewed for about Jimmy and for the book? Uh, uh, let's see. I, I know I spoke to George Clinton, but that was mainly about supporting um, in the band of gypsies into the Rock and Roll and R&B Hall of Fame. Uh, same with Bootsy Clinton, mm. I mean, Bootsy uh, Collins. 
Uh, some of the people that I interviewed was uh, his brother Leon. I interviewed him. Uh, a lady named Rosalie Brooks. Uh, she was a early love interest of Hendrix and also played with him on a song called, uh, uh, what was it, uh, UT and uh, My Diary. Mm. Um, two of his early songs. So I spoke to her. Um, Michael Hampton, Kid Funkadelic, one of the um, uh, lead guitarists of Funkadelic. Uh, let's see. Also, amazing Jimmy Mays. This is a guy that played with uh, Jimmy when he was with Joey uh, D and the Starlighters. Mm. And um, also played with him in Harlem and so forth. And then when Jimmy became famous, he uh, came back and played with them again. So, um, so a lot of these people that I interviewed, Tahaka Ali, and I even interviewed Professor Griff from the Public Enemy. Oh, wow. Um, and, and got his um, take. Uh, you know, a lot of these people that you don't think might be in the Hendrix, a lot of them are. And um, it, it's just like a, a nice collection of people that you may know and some you may not know. Uh, for instance, um, also interviewed Sheldon Reynolds, who was at one time married to Janie Hendrix. Um, who was the CEO of the Hendrix Estate, but he was also a guitarist with the group uh, Sun, Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Commodores, and so forth. Oh, wow. So it's just like a, a wide selection of people that I interviewed. Juma, Juma Sultan, who played with him at Woodstock, uh, and also on a Dick Cavett show, you know, played percussion. Um, and I also interviewed um, Billy Cox, who was the played with him with the uh, bass and uh, Jerry Velez who also played with him at Woodstock. So there's a lot of people in here that you can get a, a wide spectrum of uh, perspective. Man, that's, I mean, those are some big heavyweights. What, what would you say was a piece of information that really knocked you off your feet when you found out, wow, this is, this is, this is how Jimmy got down. This is what he thought. I would say uh, some of that stuff that he said about race in his interview. Uh, I think they asked him about um, burning stuff down. He said, "Yeah, he should burn it down." You know that. You know. So, I mean, here it is. This guy was speaking with the white reporter in England, and uh, they were asking him direct questions on race and the riots and things like that. And he was, you know, when you look at it from that perspective now, I mean, he was quite militant. Um, and uh, just another side uh, point, um, they just came out with the Electric Ladyland 50th year anniversary box set. And uh, it was a one that was like an outtake or something, uh, a song called Somewhere. And this is like one of those songs where he's playing like that deep Delta blues Um the somewhere that appears on like Crash Landing is like a rock version, but this was a particularly deep uh, blues version. And he had one line in that song that I like to read. Uh, it they called my mama a witch and hung her up by the tree. That's the last I seen of Mississippi. Mm. Now this is Jimi Hendrix saying this. I mean, he definitely had knowledge, deep knowledge of the blues to, to make her, um, statement like that in his song. Absolutely. Because it's just a loaded statement. And just think about, just deeply think about what he just said. And here it is, this guy is known for psychedelic rock and that, but 
he could do it all. It's, you know, that was amazing when I, when I heard that line in that song. Yeah, I, I mean, it is amazing. And <laughs> I hope I don't hurt no one's fe- feelings, but it's ironic and extremely humorous that um, a multitude of people who says there's no white, there's no black, there's just blues, would sing that lyric as if it just was nothing but words omitting what it really means. So you can't appreciate the blues or a black musician without really appreciating what's being said because that's very deep considering one side of my family come out of Mississippi and they left Mississippi for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Jimi Hendrix grew up in Seattle, but I mean, when you when you hear him speak those lyrics, you can tell he has a deep connection with people in the South because that's where most of us came from anyway, as far as black people in America. Correct. I mean, that's we call what's that? Uh, West Coast, Northwest, maybe Seattle's Northwest. Yeah, the uh, Northwest, right? Pacific Northwest. Pacific. Okay, so now. If we speak in regards to the several migrations, and we don't have to go all the way back to the 1800s, we can start in the turn of the century. You know, the, the second migration, well, some people call it the second. I like to call it 1A, because it's like one, then it's 1A, there's two, there's three. Between 1A and 2, they they went west, northwest, Pacific West, right? Uh, what's the movie? One of my favorite movies uh, with Denzel Washington, um, the a devil in the the devil or a devil in the blue dress. That's part that right. right. That gives us a story of the migration to the other side of the coast. So Jimmy's family could easily have been part of that migration because a lot of black folk moved to Seattle from not just the South but from Oklahoma, which. Mm. If we speak about Oklahoma, why they were calling him Native American and not black, because Oklahoma is, that's where all of our Indian ancestors who are dark-skinned, brown-skinned, melanated, went to from the South. So, they, they, you know, they can cut it, write it how they want. It's the same people. He's representing the same people. <laughs> and right, he's right, playing yeah. the same folk music, Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, can't deny that. Now, I know what you're talking I just saw it. Oh, the interviewer asked him specifically about burning down warehouses in the U.S. Jimmy says, oh, they should burn down more, I think. And that, that is kind of ironic, considering what we've just witnessed in this national civil unrest, right? Right, and especially in Seattle, too. I mean, his hometown, uh, where they're kind of, you know, turning up over there. So, I'm going to link this into the description, but I would like you to tell the good folks, one, where they could purchase the book, two, what your social media handles are, how they can find you, and are you doing any other uh, lectures or anything that has to do with the book? Okay, you can purchase um, my book, Jimi Hendrix, Black Legacy, as well as my first book, Nobody Cages Me, from my website, or www.jimibl.com. So that's Jimmy BL for Jimmy Black Legacy.com. That's the first place you can get it. You can also go to Amazon, type in Jimmy Hendrix Black Legacy. You can go to Barnes & Noble, do the same thing. 
it's um, all over the internet and so forth. Um, also, um, it's in an e-form, it's in hardback, uh, paperback. And uh, on social media, you can also go to Facebook, type in Jimi Hendrix Black Legacy. I'm on there. Uh, you can go to Twitter, uh, type in Jimi Hendrix Black Legacy. I'm on there. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I'm on Instagram, but those two places, you can definitely uh, keep up with what's going on. And as of right now, I'm trying to still line some things up, but um, I'm kind of deeply engrossed in a project that I'm working on in my hometown here in Augusta, Georgia, with the uh, R&B Hall of Fame. We're trying to bring the R&B Hall of Fame here to Augusta, Georgia, the home of James Brown. And so that's a big project, and I believe we got a great shot. And if this happens... Uh, I have a big part in it, and I'll make sure that my main man, Jimmy Hendrix, is well represented, as well as the band of Gypsies um, in there. So I'm hoping that it gets here, you know, that way, you know, we can make sure that we preserve his. I mean, the blues is definitely going to be in there because that started before um, R&B, so we got to have the blues in there. Absolutely. So this is going to be, right, it's going to be comprehensive, and it's going to be, something that's desperately needed, you know, it, it should have been an R&B Hall of Fame or a Rock Hall of Fame when you consider the history of the music. I mean, you know, <laughs> we I, you get no rebuttals from me, but we you, you and I both know how these things are set up. I, I do want to say when you mentioned uh, Augusta University, I wanted to go into James Brown so bad, but I was like, this is Jimmy's time. I'm happy you brought that up. <laughs> but yeah, James Brown and Jimmy Hendrix, I, I put them both together because I'm from Augusta, so. Yeah, bro. I mean, we we're, we're talking about some some brothers who, regardless, because I you know, James Brown was a wild dude, but he definitely rose the bar in so many aspects of black life, black business, traditional black music. Same thing as Jimmy. When you, you I, I would really like when you get this next project either off the ground or solidified. Please come back on the show so we could talk about that. Sure, definitely will. I'll keep you updated. Thank you. Mr. Washington, it was definitely a pleasure talking to you about this book, about Jimmy, and about the social, racial, and, and, and traditional impact he's had on what I like to call the blues people. Definitely. Uh, thanks a lot, Lamont. Uh, thanks for having me on Jack Dapper Blues. Uh, you certainly asked some very poignant questions, and I think the people listening will definitely get a lot out of it.